the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. He's saying to them, if you acknowledge that John the Baptist got his authority from heaven and John the Baptist was running around saying, I'm Messiah, then the answer to your question, where do I get my authority, is from heaven. Because if you acknowledge John got his authority from heaven and John says, I'm Messiah, the answer to your question is, my authority comes from heaven, just like John's. And so he's not evading the question, but he at the same time in explaining it is also exposing He's exposing in them their own ulterior motives. Jesus always had a way of calling out the religious leaders on their issues. They really had trouble listening, but they certainly could have learned something incredible from him. Today's message brings with it another encounter between Jesus and these leaders, and Jesus will be again pointing out their ulterior motivation. Pastor Gary will share exactly what they're asking and why it revealed a glaring heart issue. It's a problem that persists still today. It's hard for people to admit that Jesus is God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke, chapter 20, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Well, Luke, chapter 20 is where we left off. Um, I just want to back up a little bit and read some of the closing verses of chapter 19 so we can be reminded here. Chapter 19 is Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem as Luke records it. This is going to be now the final week of his life leading up to his crucifixion. And so chapter 19 includes the triumphal entry there at verse 28, which we commonly call today uh, Palm Sunday, when Jesus goes into the city of Jerusalem. He weeps over the city of Jerusalem because for the most part, many of them did not receive him and accept him as Messiah. Uh, John tells us that he came among his own, but his own received him not. So he weeps over Jerusalem. But he's going to come here. This is the final week. So what we have here in these closing chapters uh, is the record of the final week of Jesus' ministry. And when he comes into the temple area here, uh, he is disheartened. He's angry. It's righteous indignation. Not all anger is sin. There is a time and a place to be angry. There's a righteous kind of an anger. Jesus has that here because the temple of the Lord, the, the temple court has been turned into basically a mall. And it was intended by Caiaphas and Annas. They were kind of co-high priests at the time. One was appointed more so by Rome, and the other was the legitimate high priest seen by the people of Israel. They had this bazaar, this flea market that had overtaken the temple court area as a way to line their own pockets. They were gouging the people. They were financially ripping them off. 
and they had turned the temple courts from a place that should have been a place of prayer and a place of worship into a place of merchandising, into a place where they were financially ripping people off, taking advantage of people, just becoming this circus. And Jesus enters this. Here's the last couple of verses of chapter 19, verse Uh, 45, then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house would be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So they wanted to kill these chief priests and teachers of the law, the religious leaders who were threatened by the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is coming in, and he's holding them accountable, and he's calling them out, and he's driving out the money changers. Uh, they want to kill him. I mean, he's, he's disrupting their cushy little rip-off scheme, and so, among other things, and they want him dead. But the problem is that Jesus at this time is pretty popular. He's at the height of his popularity. I mean, remember, he comes into Jerusalem here riding on a donkey, and the people are hailing him with palm branches, and they're quoting from Psalm 118 because they are, for the moment at least, they are acknowledging him as the Messiah. Now, their idea of Messiah is a little bit different from Jesus' idea. Their idea of Messiah is he's an earthly king who's going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire and free everybody from Roman oppression. Jesus' idea of Messiah is quite different. He's come to overthrow the kingdom of darkness, and to deliver us from something greater than the Roman Empire, to deliver us from the bondage of sin by dying on the cross. He's going to come again and overthrow the earthly empires when he returns. And that time, the Bible says in Revelation, he'll be riding on a white horse, not on a donkey, and uh, he will come with a sword, uh, and they won't be waving palm branches. Jesus will come again, and in that day, when he comes again, he's going to establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. That's the millennial reign. But this is the time Jesus comes to die. And the chief priests and religious leaders are threatened by him and his ministry and his boldness and his truth, and they want to kill him, but they can't because Jesus is popular. They know if they try to kill Jesus, then they might be killed. So what we find now in chapter 20 are these different ways that these religious leaders now are going to try to challenge his authority and discredit him in front of all the people. Because here's what they're thinking. If we can discredit Jesus, we can challenge his authority, if we can make him look bad or ridiculous or something, then the people will not see him in the popular way that they do, and then we're more able to kill him because now he won't be popular among the people. The problem is... You know, what they don't realize is you can't argue with God, okay? If you think you're really smart, and they think they are, because they're going to try to debate him, they're going to try to trick him. It tells us here in chapter 20 that they have evil intent. You better pick somebody besides God to try to trick. So this is what happens. They end up looking ridiculous here, and there's a series here in chapter 20. We're first going to see here, about uh, the chief priests, teachers of the law. They're going to come, they're going to question his authority. And then we see uh, later in verse uh, 20 that they send spies. We find out from Matthew that it's the Pharisees and the Herodians send out spies to try to trap Jesus in something he says. Then we get down to verse 27. Some Sadducees are going to come and they're going to debate him with hypothetical and hypocritical questions. 
So this whole chapter here is just full of people who don't like Jesus trying to discredit him. So this is the last week of Jesus' life. Chapter 20 is probably Monday, maybe Tuesday of that final week. You know, if, if, if chapter 19 is Sunday when he comes in on Palm Sunday, then chapter 20 is probably Monday or Tuesday. And what he commonly would do, which any rabbi would do, when you go to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, a rabbi would typically uh, go there to the temple court area and just begin to teach. And then his followers or other people who were there for the feast would stop and listen. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's going to the temple court area during the daytime, sleeping on the Mount of Olives at nighttime. And during the daytime, he teaches. But here come his critics, and here come the skeptics. So chapter 20, verse 1 says that one day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, gospel means good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Now, what they're probably referring to is the incident that we just read at the end of chapter 19. Jesus goes in, sees all the money changers, sees all this whole circus of like this bazaar, this flea market, goes in, overturns the tables, drives them out. And that's probably what they're referring to. Who gave you the authority to come in here and do all this? Now, Jesus is going to employ a common method in his day that I think is still an excellent method. Whenever you get asked a question that you're, it's not like Jesus didn't know how to answer it, but I'm saying in terms of us, so we don't know how to answer, okay? Or, we're, or we need time to think. You ever been in a situation like that where you're asked a question, just kind of confronted with a question, you're kind of like, oh, uh-oh, what's the right answer on this? If I, if I say this answer, or if I say this answer, I'm dead either way. So a good method to employ is something called the Socratic method, because Socrates back in, you know, like the 300s or 400s BC would answer a question with a question. Now, it's not like Jesus is, oh, Socrates, yo, I've learned from you. But it's, it's, you know, but it was commonly called the Socratic method. But it was a very common way of causing people to think critically, helping people to think through what they've just asked. And so Jesus is going to ask a question in response to their question. He's going to answer their question with a question. And so here it comes. Verse 3. He replied, I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men. In other words, he's asking, okay, let's talk about John the Baptist then. Did he get his authority from heaven, or, or did he get it from men? I'll answer your question if you can answer this question. It's brilliant. That, what Jesus says here is absolutely brilliant, because, notice verse 5, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. Okay, now, before we see what they come out of the huddle, all right, they got to discuss this in a huddle. What are we going to say here? That's a good question. He's asked us a question in response to our question here. And so, and they're realizing, they're processing this. Now, Jesus is not evading their question, okay? He's actually exposing and explaining at the same time. 
See, he's explaining it this way. He's basically getting them to realize, if you say that John the Baptist got his authority from heaven, and John the Baptist was the one going around announcing, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptist was declaring Jesus was Messiah. Okay? So he's saying to them, if you acknowledge that John the Baptist got his authority from heaven, and John the Baptist was running around saying, I'm Messiah, then the answer to your question, where do I get my authority, is from heaven. Because if you acknowledge John got his authority from heaven, and John says, I'm Messiah, the answer to your question is, my authority comes from heaven, just like John's. And so he's not evading the question, but he at the same time, in explaining it, is also exposing He's exposing in them their own ulterior motives. They don't really want to know the answer to the question. They just want to try to trap him. They could care less what his answer is. They just want to discredit him in some way. So they ask the question. They get in a little huddle. Like, oh, no. If we say it was from heaven, then, then he's going to ask us, well, why didn't you believe John the Baptist? Why didn't you believe that I'm the Messiah? Because he kept saying that I was the Messiah. And if we say it wasn't from heaven, all these people are standing around because they're waiting for this answer. You know, it's a crowded place around the temple courts. And they're like, if we say it wasn't from heaven, these people are going to stone us. What are we going to do? They come out of the huddle. Break. And then, this is their answer. Verse 7, so they answered, well, we don't know where it was from. They're just going to play. We'll, we'll, we'll try to just go right in the middle here. We don't really want to say, Jesus. We don't really want to know. We don't, want, we don't know where it was from. And Jesus said, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Isn't that just brilliant? And you can just imagine the look in their faces like, Ugh. Yeah, we thought we had him trapped. And then he asked us a question. We did not answer it. And now, uh, you know, so he doesn't answer it. He knows where he got his authority here. But please note this. I think, honestly, this is a pretty good practical lesson we learned from Jesus. Jesus showed incredible compassion for legitimate seekers. But he had no tolerance whatsoever for those who were insincere seekers and critics and mockers. Sometimes you might feel like you were obligated to engage people who really have no interest in knowing the truth. They just are critics and mockers. But, you know, we have always these good intentions that we want to reflect well on God, so we'll go ahead and try to engage people that we know are just being critical and mockers, and they have no real interest in the truth. But we want to try to represent the Lord well, so we'll go ahead and engage them in conversations. Please take a note out of the playbook of Jesus here. He didn't even engage them. They were not sincere. He knew it. And because they were not sincere seekers, he didn't engage them in conversation. Don't feel obligated if, if there is someone who is just basically, you know, you can discern, you can see. The real issue there is they just want to be critical. They just want to try to discredit you. They just want to say something to make you look ridiculous in front of your friends. So they're going to try to engage you in some Christian conversation. If you know clearly that their motive is only that, don't engage them. Don't engage them. Jesus doesn't engage them. There's, you know, there's wisdom in this. And, and in the wisdom of Jesus, he's just like, okay, you guys are insincere seekers. I'm not even going to answer your question. I'm not going to engage you in conversation here. Well, then he went on to tell a parable here. And at uh, verse 9, this is the parable of the tenants. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. Here's kind of the key to the uh, to the parable. I'm going to give it to you in advance so we can see it as we go through it. 
He's going to talk here about a vineyard. And in the story are servants and tenants and an heir. And this is the key to the parable. The vineyard is a, um, a word that really is describing this. This parable is describing Israel in general. Let me read out of Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. This is, this is what it says. It's, it's clear that, you know, in their own... In their own scriptures, they would have understood that when Jesus talks in terms of a vineyard, that the vineyard is really a picture of Israel. So listen to what Isaiah says. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Listen to verse 7, Isaiah 5. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So, you know, Isaiah's talking about a period in Israel's history where they were in rebellion against the Lord, but God refers to them as this choice vineyard that he loves, that he took care of, that he groomed, and yet still it didn't produce good fruit because it was in rebellion to God. So Jesus is going to use this typology of a vineyard. They should know from Isaiah 5, from their own scriptures, this is a reference to Israel. Uh, the servants in the story are the prophets, The tenants are the Jewish religious leaders who didn't believe in Jesus, and the heir is Jesus. So now let's read it with that in mind. So he went on to tell this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard, And killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So, this is a very, you know, a parable again, a parabolo is something that is thrown alongside. Uh, A parable is a way to illustrate a deeper spiritual truth, and Jesus is trying to expose their hearts, the religious leaders. You know, here God is the owner of the vineyard, He comes. And he establishes the nation of Israel, but it doesn't produce good fruit. And so God sends one servant after another. And it's a a reflection of one Old Testament prophet after another to speak truth into into the nation. And still, they keep killing every prophet. They don't want to hear the truth. Finally, the owner sends his son. Finally, God sends his son. Here comes Jesus onto the world scene here. And what do they end up doing to him? Well, he prophetically talks about how they, they just want to kill him. They don't want the heir around. They kill him, and then there's going to be judgment. 
Now, they, it says, when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, that's our namesake. Cornerstone Chapel is about Jesus, okay? Cornerstone is a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the chief stone from which the whole edifice is built. And this is a prophecy from Psalm 118 that the builders will reject the capstone or the cornerstone. It says cornerstone in King James, but capstone here in NIV. But it's the idea that Jesus prophetically is telling them, you're going to reject me, just as Psalm 118.22 says. And then he talks there in verse 18 about those who fall on that stone will be broken, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Circle the words in your Bible, or if you have an electronic Bible, uh, highlight the word broken and highlight the word crushed. Okay, Jesus talks here about the results, uh, one being that there will be brokenness, and the, the other result is there will be a crushing. Now, if you notice, he says here, Again, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken. So notice, the one who falls is taking the initiative themselves. But then he talks about another individual who represents another group of people, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. So here's the idea. Jesus says, you could either fall on me and be broken, and brokenness is a good thing. Or you can reject me and you'll be judged, you'll be crushed. It is better to fall on Jesus than to have him fall on you. It is better to humble yourself and come to the place of brokenness before Jesus than to rebel against him, reject him, and then be crushed by his judgment. That's what he's saying here. Listen, Psalm 51 verse 17, it's a great verse just where it says broken there in your Bibles, just right next to it, right? Psalm 51, 17. David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Listen to that. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, brokenness. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. God loves broken people. Because in our brokenness, that's when we humble ourselves and we come to the place of being at the bottom of ourselves and saying, Lord Jesus, save me, forgive me, and we come to that place of brokenness. That is a good thing. Most of the things we think about in our culture that are broken, we discard. It's trash. You break something, if you can't mend it in some way or glue it back together, even after you glue it back together. My wife was given this, um, it's, it's this plug-in thing which has a light bulb underneath it and on the top it melts this uh, perfumey, waxy candle kind of thing. I don't know, and I don't even remember how I did it. And she wasn't around, but I bumped, I bumped the shelf it was on and that thing came crashing down. Now what do you think I did before she got home? I mean, it was, in about, it was about in five pieces. I glued that thing together. I glued it together, and I put it right back on the shelf right where it was. 
But then I told her, <laughs> because the worst thing would be to glue it and not tell her. So I glued it and I told her. But a lot of times the things that we break, we end up, oh, I'm just going to throw this thing away, because we discard things that are broken. But the one thing that God esteems more than anything else is brokenness. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection and that we were able to dig into the Gospel of Luke together. Did you know you could download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you anywhere you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can also learn about the church behind this ministry. We'd love to meet you at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We're meeting weekly in person and online, so please join us for worship and Bible study. You can find all the information you need to connect and get service times at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We pray you've been blessed by this teaching today on the life of Jesus. Know that we're praying for you too. Is there anything specific we could lift up to the Lord? Let us know by emailing prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but join us next time to continue studying Luke right here on Cornerstone Connection.